0: Hello, and welcome to the New Testament in its World podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bird. In this podcast, N.T. Wright and I explore questions about the world of the New Testament, such as what is the purpose of the New Testament? What was the kingdom of God? What is the meaning and significance of Jesus' resurrection? Who was the Apostle Paul, and why should we care? These are the same questions we explore in the book we've written together, The New Testament in Its World. In today's episode, we're talking about the Jewish context of Jesus and the Jewish context of the first century church. We're also going to talk about how the early church discussed Jesus in relation to God and God in relation to Jesus. And then we sit down with Janine Brown for a conversation about the Gospel of Matthew. And finally, we hear from Tom Wright on a phrase Paul often uses that has become very controversial. In the traditional versions, the phrase is rendered faith in Christ. That's pistis Christu in the Greek. And Tom shows why you might want to consider translating this in a slightly different way along the lines of the faithfulness of Christ. It's a truly fascinating conversation. I know you'll enjoy it. So now, please enjoy this episode of the New Testament in its
1: World podcast. Here we are in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is actually a fourth-century synagogue, though most people think it's built on the site where there would have been a first-century synagogue. And a synagogue, the Greek word means coming together, is the place where the community would gather, not just for prayer and worship, but for all sorts of meetings about the things that concerned them, whether economic or social or political or cultural. So this is the focal point of the small town Capernaum that Jesus made his home during his public career. Now, in a place like this, there would be all sorts of activities going on, We're right by the Sea of Galilee so that fishing is one of the main occupations, but there is farming locally. There are small industries. And just up the road, there is the border between the territory of Herod and the territory of Philip. And every time you cross the border, you have to pay the tax, which at once rings bells for people who read the New Testament, because we know that Jesus called one of the tax collectors who was working there, uh, Matthew. But this is also the place where Jesus called several others of his disciples. Now, A community like this in the first century was faced with several major issues. Rome had come in nearly a century before and had made life extremely uncomfortable for some, although since the main garrison was stationed north of here in Syria, there weren't Roman soldiers around the place all the time. It wasn't a very heavy-handed presence, but everyone was aware of it, not least again because of economic taxation reasons and because particularly of that bubbling sense that carried on throughout the whole period that something was wrong, something was amiss, they were still not fully restored to be the people of God in the way they should have been. And particularly the great prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the great things they sang about in the Psalms, precisely in synagogues like this one, these promises had not yet come true. But how would they come true? There were all sorts of movements and factions and parties and people saying, maybe this is what we ought to do to make the kingdom of God come or maybe all we should do is stay quiet and pray, or maybe we should organize in some new way or reinterpret the ancient laws. So there were revolutionary movements, some of them not far from here, before the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus. Galilee was a place where revolutions could bubble up quite easily and get quite hot. And then there were the Pharisees who were a group, a populist group, a pressure group, if you like, whose aim was that though they weren't themselves priests in the temple, they would try to live in their personal lives in such a state of holiness and purity as if they were actually in the temple themselves. They were a democratizing group trying to make the ancient religion relevant to every aspect of daily life and also particularly to keep Israel special, to keep the people of God different and distinct from the rest of the world, so that then God would come and vindicate them. Then there were, of course, the Sadducees. You wouldn't hear so much about them here in Galilee because they were the aristocracy largely based in Jerusalem from which the chief priests would be drawn, And there were other movements like the Essenes. Uh, We know of the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran that seemed to represent a collection of Essene writings of people who are praying and waiting, waiting for God to act and ready to play their part if and when that happened. So it was in a place like this that Jesus of Nazareth started some of his public teaching He went around all the villages, but this was his home and he would come here and, and Sabbath by Sabbath, he would be either teaching or discussing or debating, and he would be talking about the kingdom of God. It was kind of the natural thing for people to think about in a place like this, and it had ramifications all across the society, echoing through those different parties and movements and aspirations. But Jesus had a different dream, and that was why he spent so much time explaining it.
0: Uh, it's important we talk about ancient. Judaism, and what we have to remember is Judaism was far from monolithic. It was incredibly diverse. I mean, if you got together, you know, for a seminar, a group of people like the Judean sage Ben Sirach or Philo of Alexandria, the teacher of righteousness from Qumran, uh, Rabbi Gamaliel and the Apostle Paul, and if you asked them together, you know, what makes a person a good Jew, uh, there would be a rather free and frank exchange of ideas, Added to that, we have to remember that Judaism was not a religion as we know religion. It was more like a way of life and an ethnic identity and, and, and even a nationality. Those things all fused together. And yet, despite all their diversity, the Jews who practiced their ancestral customs, they would have had several things in common, like a commitment to the Torah as story and instruction recognizing the temple as, or at least intended to be, the seat of God's presence. They would have known the importance of the land of Israel as the people's divinely given inheritance, and they would follow an annual calendar of festivals like Yom Kippur and and Passover. However, if we want to get down to the real core Jewish beliefs, You know, the ideas that sustained them over several centuries, despite domination by one pagan kingdom after another, it would probably be this. It would be monotheism and election, or we might say one God and one people. Now, the Jews believed in a very specific God of whom there was only one who made the whole world and who was active within it, even while remaining sovereign over it. They knew this God as Yahweh, the one who is, the sovereign one. He was not a remote or detached deity, nor nor was he simply a a generalized sense of the sacred dimension within the world or, or the personification of spiritual forces. Rather, this God was the maker of all that existed, and he remained powerful and involved within the world, though by no means reduced to some element of creation itself. Uh, classic Jewish monotheism, as we find in the Old Testament and later, uh, it was the belief that there was this one God who created heaven and earth and he remained in close and dynamic relation with his creation. And added to that, this God called Israel to be his special people. Uh, This later vocation was sometimes explicitly linked with the former. Yahweh had chosen Israel for the sake of the world. Uh, Election, the choice of Israel, was the focal point of the divine purpose, to act within the world to rescue and heal the world, to bring about what some biblical authors would speak of even as the new creation. And there to help Israel in this task was Torah, you know, as I said, story and instruction. Temple, worship in the seat of God's presence. Torah and temple were there to cocoon God's promises around Israel, to protract Israel's capacity to worship God and to draw the nations to the one true God of creation. Israel was to be in Canaan. Much like what Adam and Eve were in Eden, priests and kings who radiated God's love, goodness and glory to everything around them. God's purpose and plan as it unfolded in Israel's history is that God intended to rescue the world through Israel. So much so that a transformed Israel would transform the world. So if one wanted to to summarize ancient Judaism, you know, Judaism 101, no easy feat and certainly uh, disputable. We could say that common to all Jews was the conviction that their God was the creator God, not a tribal God, not merely a local deity, but God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He had called Israel to be his special possession, the people of his pasture, a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. And though the world was ravaged with sin and and savaged by dark powers, it would not always be so. Many Jews have varyingly expressed the hope that God would deliver Israel through his agents, prophets, priests, kings, and to bring about a new exodus that would see Israel's fortunes and future radically changed. And it's through a transformed Israel that God would one day transform the world.
1: One of the most extraordinary revolutions in the whole history of human thought is the way in which the early Christians talked about God in relation to Jesus and Jesus in relation to God. It used to be supposed that the early Christians started off with the idea of Jesus just as a human being, a wonderful teacher, quite possibly the Jewish Messiah, but then it was only later when the good news went out into the non-Jewish world, in other words, away from monotheism, that people started putting Jesus and God together. And so, a hundred years or so ago, people used to talk about theories to do with the ancient cults in the Greco-Roman world, which would hail some divinity as Lord, Kyrios. And so people said, that's what happened. The Christians went out and they got this idea of lordship, and so they ascribed that to Jesus. Or they saw on their coins that Caesar was called the Son of God, and so they took that and applied it to Jesus. But more recently, over the last 40 or 50 years, scholars have come round to a very different view. The phrase Son of God, for instance, comes from the Psalms and from other passages in the Old Testament, where Israel is called God's Son, and in particular, the Messiah is called God's Son. And it looks as though, from very early on, The Christians used that phrase, Son of God, partly because Jesus himself had addressed God as Abba, Father, but also because it was a natural way to say something huge, which was looming up right from the start, but for which, to begin with, they didn't have really good language. Just as today, we don't have really good language to say some of the most important things that we want to say about God and Jesus. But as we find in a passage like Philippians chapter 2, or a passage like Colossians chapter 1, there are great poems which we see there in the letters in the New Testament, which look as though they are not things that happen because some poet has taken already existing ideas and turned them into a sort of poetry, but because maybe poetry is the only way you can say some of the things that really matter, where you find that you can say two or three or four ideas at the same time so that in philippians 2 for instance we find paul saying that jesus was in the form of god and did not regard his equality with god as something to exploit but emptied himself and went all the way to the cross so that god has exalted him and given him the name above every name that every tongue should confess that jesus the messiah is lord and what people don't often realize is that paul is there quoting from a passage in the old testament from isaiah 45 in which it says that Israel's God is the only one, the absolute God, and to him and him alone every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Paul has taken one of the passages which says there is only one God and has included Jesus within that unity of the one God. An extraordinary, revolutionary idea. Where did that come from? Or take a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses One to six, but particularly six, where Paul takes the prayer of Jewish monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he opens that prayer up to say that for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus the Messiah. And somehow again, he is discovering the person of Jesus within the unity of being of the one God. Why would someone like Paul say something like that? Not because he is abandoning Judaism or monotheism, but because he's saying that the one God of Israel has done something so radically new, and yet so much in keeping with what he had always said he would do, that the only way of expressing it is through poetry and prayer in which we see this unity opening up to include Jesus within it. What seems to have happened is something like this. The early Christians, as we know, came from the Jewish world within which many people were expecting Israel's God to come back at last in person and in power and in glory, to come back to dwell in the temple in radiant splendor and particularly to rescue his people. And what seems to have happened is that the very early Christians, looking at the events of Jesus' death and resurrection on the one hand, and of the giving of the Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit on the other, found themselves telling those ancient stories of what Israel's God had promised to do, and discovering that the only way they could say that he'd done it was by telling the stories about Jesus and the Spirit. So what we find in the very earliest days of Christian faith is that they were telling the story about God as the story about Jesus, and now telling the story of God as the story of the Holy Spirit. And yes they borrowed all kinds of language they picked up language from the bible from the uses like son of god and they maybe picked up other things from the surrounding culture as well as the idea of the wisdom of god which god used to make the world and which he then sent into the world to rescue and reshape it and they fused all these together in a mixture of poetry and prayer and theological reflections So that, though it was four centuries later that doctrines like the Trinity were hammered out in terms of Greek philosophical concepts, the idea that there was one God who was now made known in and as Jesus and the Spirit was there right from the beginning.
0: Well, good morning, Janine. Welcome to the New Testament in its World podcast. I'm delighted to be here with you uh, talking about the New Testament. Uh, can I begin by asking you, um, how did you get into New Testament studies?
2: Well, I went to seminary at Bethel Seminary, which is where I now teach. Wow. Um, and uh, I had been working with campus ministries, and I knew I needed more training, and that's about all I knew. had never done any formal Bible in my undergrad. I was a music therapist. That was my degree. And uh, went to Bethel Seminary, and Bob Stein, a New Testament scholar, asked me to be his TA, and then asked me to teach Greek, and asked me to do various kinds of teachings for him. And And, and as I became more and more aware of this whole guild of New Testament studies, I thought, I would love to teach. And he said, you should go on for PhD work. So he really mentored me in my career and um, went on for my PhD work and uh, never, never looked back, I guess.
0: And here you are. You've been teaching in San Diego and now returning back to um, St. Paul, Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Minnesota Mm -hmm. for um, Bethel Seminary. Excellent. Uh, Well, one of the things we want to talk about in this podcast is about the New Testament and its world. Um, Can you tell me, what, why do we need to know a little bit of history of the New Testament or behind the New Testament, but also, and I know this is one of your interests, why is it useful to know about the actual story inside the New Testament in the case of something like Matthew or one of the Gospels?
2: Well, as I tell my students, and actually I borrow here from Tom Wright um in a little interview he did um when he when one of his books came out he in one of this little a newspaper kind of things that used to come out from one of the presses. He said, you think if Jesus was a first century Jew, then Christians would want to know a bit about first century Judaism. And he had that kind of witty little turn of phrase at the end. And I, and I share that with students to say, um, really, our faith is a is a historical one. It's embedded in that first century world in terms of where Jesus came from. Um, how we understand Jesus really has to start there. Um, and then the story piece really fits in nicely because as we read, for example, Matthew, a gospel I do a lot of work in, there are inevitably gaps that are in the story that the first readers would have filled in with really good historical information. They wouldn't yep. have called it historical information. They would have said, this is the stuff we know. Yes. So author and audience assume a lot between okay. each other. I often give the example of um, Herod in chapter 2. Um, it's really helpful to know that Herod is not just simply, he's called king of the Jews, but he got to be that in a really complex way. The Jewish people were yeah. not that thrilled with the way he got to be king of the Jews. To know that he has, he's sort of Roman placed in his position really helps us to hear at the beginning of the gospel as at the end, this kind of Roman framing of what we might just simply think is a Jewish inter, inter-squabble kind of thing going on. So knowing how to fill in those gaps we're really helped by knowing first a lot about first century Judaism, Greco-Roman world, I tell my students, we're going to always fill in the gaps in, whether narrative or Paul, we're going to fill in gaps with what we think we know. So it's not that we can read a text without filling in with information. It's just what kind of information. Let's do our best to have the best information.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's good for the world behind the text. But when it comes to looking at the world inside the text, it's, it's useful to know how stories create meaning. Now, I believe you know a bit about sort of, you know, how, how do we grasp and, and exposit the narrative of a gospel? Could you say something about that?
2: Sure. Um, I have a book coming out next year that's called Gospels as Stories. And what I try to do in that book is really introduce people to what's called narrative criticism or narrative analysis of gospels. Um, I grew up in a context where I could tell you all the stories of Jesus, I think, but I couldn't tell you which gospel they necessarily came in yes. or where in the gospel they showed up. And what I really have found um, life-changing is knowing the shape of a gospel, what a, because that helps me to know what the gospel writer is doing with this story, um, where a particular story comes, what it highlights, um, how that story of Jesus is informed by the backstories of the Old Testament. Um, one of my areas of study is called intertextuality, studying how the Old Testament is used in the New, and it really enrich, enriches our study to hear how the Gospel writers drew on the Old Testament in really thoughtful ways, not haphazardly, I think, but really thoughtful ways to move forward their own story of Jesus and say, this Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised and um and is the completion of that story of the Old Testament. Oh, excellent
0: I think that's very useful with that the you know the Gospels are not just a compilation of Sunday school materials there's an actual coherent narrative to each of them and for me when I went through seminary it was like you know working through the Gospel of Mark you know it's two major parts with the climax mm-hmm. at the at the, uh, the the event at Caesar uh, Caesarea Philippi where Jesus is confessed as the Messiah seeing in Matthew the five major discourses which yes. is kind of Jesus is the bringing of the new Torah uh, understanding uh, the Structure of Luke's gospel with the you know the infancy narrative, the Galilean phase and then this amazing travel, travel narrative. narrative. Right. What yep. do you
2: what do you do with that long thing yes, there? This yeah. long where
0: you get most of the yes. most of the teaching and most of the parables. Yeah. And then John's gospel, where you know you've got the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. Mm-hmm. Simply just knowing a basic structure of a gospel it just opens up brand new vistas. It really and, does. And, it, it will, and, it does. and yeah. you hear
2: the themes then that kind of yes. weave across the within it's not really on the top of, but kind of within those storylines because yeah storylines. storylines, tell us something. Exactly. And
0: and knowing that structure gives you a kind of um, scaffolding which you can hang all these themes and connect them across the canon, Across the Gospels and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Now, I, I've just confessed, I'm a Mark and specialist, mm. so I feel like the poor cousins of the gospel study industry. So, you know, we're all back, But I think, but Matthew was the most popular gospel really of the was. early church.
2: You should kind of come on that bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, join Matthew, me, yeah. Join me, join me on the bandwagon. Uh, yeah, one
0: day, one day. <laughs> but Matthew was the most cited and quoted yep. Christian book. Of the early centuries, it was the proverbial best sent, uh, bestseller. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more manuscripts of Matthew than any other book. More quotations in the church fathers of Matthew than than any other Christian writing of, of the New Testament. Can I? But let me ask you this: Gateway
2: of the New Testament.
0: The gateway, yes. Uh, if we did not have Matthew in our New Testament, what would we be missing?
2: Oh, everything. No, that's from somebody who's written a couple commentaries on Matthew. Um, I think I could answer that question on a couple levels. One, we could just simply notice what what kinds of little moments or even sort of stories, episodes, we'd be missing if we didn't have Matthew. The women in Jesus' genealogy... Um, the, the eight Beatitudes nicely crafted together, um, uh, the story of um, the temple tax, if that yeah. jazzes yeah. uh, you. know, it can, uh, Pilate's wife, we wouldn't know about her words to Pilate. So all the way through, you could notice and the parable of the first and last, just thinking of all the unique pieces of Matthew. But I think what interests me more is how, how those get used then, how they um, enter the narrative, how they help to emphasize key themes Um, and all of the Gospel writers emphasize, or each of the Gospel writers has a portrait of Jesus that has overlap, right? You know, so we're not surprised that all of them think about Jesus as the Messiah, you know, in various uh, terms, um, son of David, son of God. But um, Matthew's Christology, picture of Jesus, um, I think really emphasizes wisdom in Mm -hmm. ways that might be hinted at in John 1 nicely, but, um, really don't come in Mark and Luke. In Matthew 11, we have a number of clues that Jesus as wisdom mm. is part of what Matthew wants us to hear. Not everything, because all of the Gospels have this multifaceted mm. picture of Jesus. But wisdom is a really intriguing theme in Matthew that some, like Ben Wetherington, have pointed out. But, yes. but I've also emphasized in my own work because that's just a nice, um, I think it's a nice discipleship theme that helps us to understand that when Jesus says, learn from me, that's, that's language that echoes yeah. the Proverbs and wisdom literature in Judaism. So this, it's a nice discipleship thing to emphasize for us to think about what does it mean to learn from Jesus? Yeah. To really be a disciple, um, and to, um, know that his yoke is a light one. What does that mean? As he talks about Torah and the way. And so I, that's another theme I in Matthew. I got my boys
0: to memorize that verse oh, this year. Oh, nice. Yeah, you know, nice. you know, Take my that's yoke beautiful. upon you. So that was the, the one verse Matthew wanted them to learn. Yeah. I have
2: a song about that. I play the piano. I was a music therapist. So I, I have a song that you know ruminates around those yeah, verses because they're so beautiful.
0: We should get it on Spotify.
2: Oh, not really. Yeah. That's my own stuff.
0: So Matthew is number one for a very good reason.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. And I love the shaping of the story. And and I, I really have appreciated scene themes that I think people tend to think Luke is sort of into justice and that language. But Matthew actually, he uses kaiosune seven times, I would argue, along with Don Heigner, that sometimes in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses it to talk about justice. He's talking about those who are starved for justice and those who then are persecuted because they bring justice in the Beatitudes. So I think there's some themes that have been more hidden potentially that if you study it long enough, you get to see these things pull out.
0: Now, when I explain the Gospels to my students, I, I kind of liken them to some contemporary movies. I say the Gospel of Mark is like the Born Identity. Mm. Okay, I tell them Luke is kind of like this, you know, uh, big epic movie like War and Peace. I tell them the Gospel of John is like the Matrix. Uh, I tell them for the Gospel of I tell them the Gospel of Matthew's it's, it's basically the Gospel of Matthew is Fiddler on the Roof. Because it has a far more, uh, I mean, all the Gospels are Jewish, yes. but in the Gospel of Matthew it is a far mm-hmm. thicker Jewish texture. Mm-hmm. Now, what what is Jewish about the Gospel of Matthew? Even though it's a key Christian text, mm-hmm. what makes it a, a also very
2: strongly,
0: very realistically, a Jewish mm-hmm. text as well?
2: Mm-hmm. And you're right. All of the Gospel writers are showing us a very Jewish Jesus, and sometimes as I, so I'm I'm a Gentile, yeah. you know. I'm not a uh, that the lens that I was provided in in church and in growing up um, tended to de-Judaize mm. Jesus, and that that's a tendency across you know across scholarship up until Ed Sanders and a variety of other. Yeah, uh, and Amy Gil Levine has been a wonderful reading partner when I read Matthew because as a Jew, she points out the silly things we say about first-century Judaism. Oh, of course. Um, but in Matthew, you know, Matthew doesn't explain some of the things Mark explains for his non-Jewish readers. We see Matthew doesn't have to do that. It seems that he's writing to primarily or maybe almost exclusively a Jewish audience. Um, so, in Matthew 15, Mark 7, he doesn't explain some of the, the practices of Jews in the same way because yeah. he doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, the theme of the Torah is really heavily emphasized in Matthew. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it, the law. Um, But I like to remind my students that that's simply a translation of the Hebrew Torah. Um, This isn't a negative word, and certainly not for Matthew, and I would argue across the New Testament. Paul doesn't use it in derogatory ways. He thinks highly of the law or the Torah, but that's maybe your area, so I won't go into that. Um, So as as we see sort of the, the theme of Torah across Matthew and when Jesus says, Matthew 23, um, 23, when he's castigating the scribes and Pharisees, some scribes and Pharisees, for uh, neglecting the weightier matters of the Torah. Justice, mercy, covenant loyalty is really hearkening back to Micah. Yeah. Um, so when we look at all the ways the, um, Matthew uses the Old Testament and the fulfillment quotations, it's just very steeped in Judaism, in yeah. Jewish theology, Jewish practice. Jesus wears the tassels on his cloak that we'd expect a rabbi to wear, chapter 9, chapter 15. It's just full of um, Jewish references, Jewish assumptions. The two people, um, the two Gentiles we see clearly coming to him during his Galilean ministry, which is uh, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, chapter 15, are a Canaanite woman and a centurion for their daughter, servant, respectively. They are provided healing because of great faith or or faith such as this, Mm. Jesus stays within that missional boundary in Matthew in ways yeah. that confound my students. <laughs> They'd say, but wait, wait, wait. stays within that missional framework until after the resurrection when his followers will bring, will bring the gospel to the, all the or disciple the nations. Yeah. Um, so we have this strong Jewish feeling in terms of the mission. It's, it's, it's localized to his own people until he's completed that mission or you know, brought that mission to fulfillment through the cross and resurrection.
0: Fascinating. Uh, one of the questions that gets posed is whether Matthew has a bit of an anti-Pauline slant. Is, is Matthew trying to uh, give a bit of a minority report, mm-hmm. saying, well, maybe Paul's gone a little bit too far on this law thing. Uh, if, if Paul and Matthew yeah. sat down over a coffee mm-hmm. or an iced tea, Diet Coke, uh, coke oh, as, as basically we're doing yeah. now, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think that conversation would be like?
2: So here's what I'd like to think. I'm not sure if it's correct, but I think Paul would be a lot more like Matthew than we have thought.
0: Yes, yes, that's I, what I, I agree.
2: One of my favorite words as a teacher is, yet or nevertheless, I love to qualify mm. because that's what teachers love to do, right? When you're trying to describe something really complex, you qualify. However, nevertheless, though, um, Paul, the, the highest percentage of those yet, nevertheless kinds of statements or moments in Paul are when he's talking about the Torah.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's
2: good, yet it's been captured by sin. You know, yep. it's really sin has taken over the law. That's a problem with the law. Or the law is good, the problem is with people. You know, I mean, it's, or with Israel. So it's just this, I um, was qualifying, so I think Paul has, I read Paul differently because I started in Matthew. Now, I didn't really start in Matthew, but I mean, in terms of my doc, my doctoral work, my scholarly work, I've spent a lot of time there, and I've I've brought that lens sort of intentionally to Paul to try to try on that. And then I've read Jewish scholars like Mark Nanos and and others who have who've given me some help thinking through that lens. Um, And I think sometimes new perspective provides me with also that sense of the law is good and how it was being used in some circles was leaving out in the new in the new community of faith, was leaving out Gentiles. And that whether eating or you know these things that we're to do together in in the Christian faith it was hard for Jews to, some Jews to do that as they were kind of hanging on to the things that separated Jew and Gentile.
0: I agree, and I, I know Tom Wright would definitely agree with, with that, that Paul is definitely a Jewish thinker. He's reworking the Jewish worldview around the Messiah and yeah. the Spirit. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and in many senses, he's bringing them into a type of Jewish culture because he, he wants them to be monotheists, not, not, not polytheists. He wants them to avoid idolatry. Uh, very much. So he doesn't want them to intermarry with, uh, with, with pagans. He's getting them to uh, venerate or revere uh, the Jewish scriptures. Uh, and he also has a place for, you know, Israel's promises and hope as part of their identity mm-hmm. and their faith. So in his own way, he's very much bringing them into a, Ju- a Jewish worldview, not trying to move out of Judaism and create some kind of Gentile religion with a slightly Jewish light option.
2: Yeah, so I, I tend to like reading Matthew, mm-hmm. reading Paul through Matthew, just as a sort of heuristic, just to. It's not been done much, so let's try it on for size, and we'll do that in class a little bit. And st- okay. we study Matthew, we study Romans in this upper level course, yes. and we then we take the two and say, how do they align in terms of Jew Gentile mission yeah. and Torah and. What's interesting at the end of Matthew is um, so. Torah obedience is really emphasized all the way yeah. through Matthew. And at the end, it's sort of refracted through Jesus' own teachings. Yeah. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there's something that's after the resurrection that does shift, yeah. um, but it's not out of line with the Torah. Yeah, and can't and be.
0: Romans uh, begins and ends with reference to the obedience of faith. Yes. It's, it's about bringing Gentiles, these um, you know, polytheistic pagans, uh, immersed in, uh, in the immorality, the ignorance, and the idolatry of the groker woman world, uh, consecrating them before God and bringing them to the obedience of faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Janine, one final question for you. Right. My colleague Tom, uh, he's been very big on understanding Second Temple Judaism uh, in light of what he calls. Uh, uh, the Jews still being in exile, although they've returned from Babylon back to Judea, the effects of the exile are still uh, lasting somehow. You know the great grandiose promises of Isaiah, mm-hmm. Ezekiel, Jeremiah uh, did not seem to have come to fruition. and and in my reading, and that's going from like Tobit fourteen all the way to modern scholars like Joseph Klausner, you know the idea that that Israel is still in exile. Now, this has been very controversial. <laughs> And I understand some of the critiques that maybe it's been uh, overplayed or maybe Mm -hmm. you don't find it in quite as many places but in my reading of Matthew I think it works with Matthew because you've got like chapter 2 you know uh, with um, so Rachel still weeping for her children yes, and yes. then uh, particularly in, in chapter 8 you know many will come from the east and the mm-hmm, west and mm-hmm. recline with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of H- I mean, This is clear end of exile yes. language um, talking about both Israel's restoration and when it happens the sequel means the Gentiles yeah. are coming. That's the, that's the sequel to Israel's end of exile is that the, the Gentiles, the nations are drawn to Zion mm-hmm. with gifts and offerings, and then, and then they're joining the returning diaspora. So, so what's your take on this mm-hmm. still-in-exile theme, at least as it applies to Matthew?
2: I was really impacted. New Testament of the people of God was my under-the-tree Christmas present, I think, in 1996 or something like that. Does that sound right in terms of... Yeah. It was published by then. I just want to make sure my dates aren't too off. Um, so I was really impacted by that idea, and I was convinced by it. And as I came to Matthew and started doing more work... Exile shows up in chapter 1, right? That's one of the markers of the 14 generations. It's clearly meant to be a storied kind of way of saying, and in Jesus now, exile is coming to be over. It's starting to be at an end. So chapter 2, all those texts that are cited in chapter 2 have exile around them, not just the one from Jeremiah, but the other texts as well uh, from the Old Testament have exile around the outside of the citations there. Um, so I'm very much convinced of it. And I think it's Brad Petrie who argues with Matthew 2 in mind that even if we say Israel's come back from exile, the northern tribes yeah. never come back. So there's, yeah. there's still an exile for part of Israel, even if some have come back to the land. So that sort of partial return... Uh, so uh, he finds it very convincing as well. So I think very much so, even as we move into chapters 3 and 4, we have this theme of return from exile. Jesus is the answer to that problem of exile, um, the sin of the exile. So he will come and he will bring, um, he will save the people from their sins, 121. So I very much read it through a rightian lens, I suppose I would say. I've been very impacted by uh, Tom's work and, and have brought that, I, I hope, thoughtfully into my Mythean work uh, and find it very, very fruitful.
0: Well, Janine, thank you very much for your time, and I hope you make a good transition from warm San Diego to um, freezing cold uh, Minnesota in the coming weeks.
2: I will dress for the weather. We'll see how that goes. Indeed. Thank you Thanks very much, so much, Janine. Thanks Thanks.
1: There's a phrase which Paul uses a few times, which has come to be quite controversial in recent discussions, and this shows up in various new translations of the New Testament. In the traditional versions, it used to appear as faith in Jesus Christ or faith in Jesus the Messiah. I'm thinking, for instance, of a verse like Galatians 2.16, where Paul says we have believed or had faith in the Messiah Jesus. And then he goes on to say, so that we might be justified, and here's the critical phrase, is it by faith in Christ or by the faithfulness of Christ and not by works of the law? Now, because of the great debates that took place in the 16th century about faith versus works, everybody in that tradition used to say that what Paul is doing is contrasting our faith with our works. But as people have studied the Greek and have thought about the meaning of various other passages in which this phrase occurs, another option has come to the fore, which on balance I am inclined to take up myself, and that is because the Greek can mean this, that the word pistis, faith, can be faith as in our faith in, or that something or someone, or faithfulness, in which case Paul could be referring to the faithfulness of Jesus, the faithfulness of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus' own faithful life, including particularly his obedient death, which Paul describes in terms of obedience in Romans 5 and in Philippians 2, so that we now have quite a finely balanced question. In passage after passage in Galatians 2 and 3, and in Philippians 3 and in Romans 3, is Paul talking primarily about something that God has done in and through the faithfulness of Jesus for our benefit, or is it about the faith with which we reach out and grasp what has been done? For me, the crucial passage is Romans 3, In Romans 3, Paul is talking about the problem that faces the Jewish people, despite the fact that they have been called by God to be the people who bring the light to the nations. And he says, what is the advantage of being a Jew? What's the value of circumcision? Much in every way, because to begin with, he says, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's Romans 3, verse 2. And the word for entrusted is very similar to the word for faith because in English we have faith, faithfulness, trust, loyalty. But in Greek, it tends all to come down to this word pistis, or the verb pistuo, And so when Paul says they were entrusted with the oracles of God, he goes on at once, well, supposing some were untrustworthy. In other words, he seems to be saying God gave the Jewish people his oracles for the nations, but they were untrustworthy. They didn't Pass the message on. They were not actually a light to the nations. Instead, the nations looked at them and scorned their God, as he says in chapter 2. So the problem then is, what is God going to do? If his plan always involved faithful Israel bearing his light to the nations, and if Israel has said, no, we're not going to do that, or not do it in the way that you wanted," is God then going to say, well, we'll forget that plan and do something else instead? Now, here's a problem. Many, many Christians in the Western Church over the years have said, yep, that's exactly what God has done. He's written the Jews out of the plan, and he's got a plan B called Jesus instead. That's exactly wrong. In Romans 3, 21, 22, 23, Paul picks up that train of thought and says, this is how God's faithfulness to the covenant has been revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. In other words, the Jewish people were called to be faithful to God's plan and the faithful obedience which Jesus, as Messiah, has offered, instead of being the denial of the Jewish plan and its God-givenness, is its fulfillment. So that now in Romans 3, 22, he says, God's covenant faithfulness has been unveiled, and it's witnessed to by the Law and the Prophets, and it's the covenant faithfulness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. But this doesn't mean, of course, that human faith is irrelevant, because he goes on to say in the next breath, for the benefit of all who believe. Here's how it works. Jesus has been faithful to God's plan, and his death achieved uniquely the salvation which God always purposed for the human race. What then is to be the badge which says that somebody belongs to that people and is taking full advantage of what was done for them on the cross? The answer is their own faith, faithfulness, in the God who has acted in Jesus, so that faith is not an arbitrary badge, as though God just happens to like people who believe things. Rather, faith is what Jesus did in his faithfulness and what we do in believing the gospel and so appropriating what was there achieved for us.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please visit our website newtestamentworld.com. There you'll find a link to the book, The New Testament in Its World, along with links to the video series Tom and I filmed on location in Israel and around the Mediterranean. You can also download there a free in-depth guide to the material we talked about in this episode, which includes show notes, discussion questions, and resources for further study. It also includes items we didn't get to today, so I really encourage you to check it out. The website again is newtestamentworld.com. In the next episode of the New Testament World podcast, Tom and I reflect on Paul's life and ministry. It's a conversation we recorded while we were walking around the ruins of Corinth. We talk about why Paul was such a controversial figure both then as he is now. And as you probably know, Tom has been at the center of recent debates about the Apostle Paul, so it's a conversation you will not want to miss. After that, we'll hear from Tom about his favorite book of the New Testament, and we'll also talk to my good friend, Nijay Gupta, about the books 1 and 2 Thessalonians and the world of the first century church. We'll see you next time.